In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have come to the center of the fast. And finding ourselves at the center, at the very heart of the fast, we look up, and before us is the cross of our Savior. And we set the cross in the center of the church in order to recenter ourselves as Christian people. And we are constantly having to do this because we are not dead but alive. If there is something inorganic, a stone, and you make a mark on the stone, it will be there on the day the earth ends. But if you take your fingernail and mark your skin, in minutes it is gone. And if we want a mark on our skin, we have to constantly be redoing it. So, because we are alive, we must constantly be recentering ourselves, looking around, finding our orientation, and every day, and how many hours during the day, finding our place again. And at the heart of this 40-day fast is the cross, and therefore we understand that the Church is teaching us that this is where we must be, standing here. And so this week you and I will be meditating and contemplating our lives in the light of the cross which has become the ensign of our victory in Christ. And so we understand that our victory is already a paradox. It is not going to make sense in terms of the pagan logics and rationalism of Plato and Aristotle. It is going to make a different kind of sense according to a different kind of logic. And Christ is telling us, what is this cross? And he speaks of it, he who knows what he speaks about. In terms of profit and loss, and life and death, and adultery and fidelity. So these are our themes this week, and we are examining the words that flow far too easily off our tongues, that flood of verbiage that comes from each of us, much of it spoken, too much of it spoken, and much of it spoken internally. As we say, we can be standing in an elevator, cheek to jowl with other people, and there at that very moment in his heart a man is committing murders, and we do not know it. But because God knows it, and you and I know it, it becomes crucial, critical information. The Lord begins as God begins with man, respecting our freedom. 
This is why Alexander Schmemann, the Russian ecclesiastical writer, would always speak about the profound anthropological optimism of the East, following the Fathers, that Eastern Mediterranean, where it was clearly understood that God himself respects our freedom, that freedom with which he himself endows us, and the profound anthropological pessimism of the West after Augustine of Hippo, where we speak of the massa damnata, the damned mass. And we understand that he respects our freedom because of the very first words, whosoever will come after me. The Lord said this to whosoever, probably in Greek something like otinos, whosoever will come after me, let him. The grammar is crucial because in this grammar is structured the relationship between God and us. Whosoever will, whoever wants to, come after me, let him do what? How paradoxical. In an age which is into self-help, self-therapy, self-imaging, self-everything, let him deny himself. Oh Lord, what kind of a poster is this going to turn out to be? How many recruits are going to line up for this one? Whosoever will come after me, and coming after has, you've sprinkled a little bit of chasing here. Whoever wants to engage in the chase of the divine fox, let him deny himself. How astounding. How are we adults who have been around the block more than once, who weren't born yesterday, who are high mileage, how exactly do we go about? In view of our family responsibilities, our careers, all of those things, how exactly am I going to deny myself? And if there be children for whom I am responsible, how am I going to teach them both to be survivors in the tough race of going to a public school and growing up and getting jobs and at the very heart of their personality be self-deniers? Lord have mercy. But Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And here now we stand where we're supposed to be at the center, at the heart. Take up the cross and follow. Not take up the cross and stay put. Take up the cross and stand still. Take up the cross and just 
go into an utterly passive state, but take up and follow. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And therein is the heart of the Christian manner of living on the surface of this planet. Those who engage in the kinds of activities that are designed to save our life, we are going to lose it. We are like the drowning man clutching at any straw that floats past, attempting to save our lives, to prop ourselves up with what? Wine, women, and song. Another trip to another mall to shop for more things that we will bring home and put with the other things and turn around like squirrels getting acorns and get more acorns. Those of us who want to save our lives within the context of this earth, this world, for sure we are lost. But, but, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. Losing we gain, losing we save, attempting to cling, to grasp, to grip on to some self-improving idea, we will lose. It is in the presence of the cross we understand how Christianity turns earthly reality on its head, stands it upside down, turns it inside out. As a Russian philosopher said, the cross is a big question mark imposed on everything that we think we know. Everything that we believe we're sure of. All the little verities, all the little earthly goodies that make it worthwhile getting up in the morning. What shall it profit a man should he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Ah. So the whole world, every palace, every Baroque breakfront, every Rolls Royce in it, is not worth our soul. Every diamond, every precious thing, Every rising stock is not worth your soul. The priority is a given. Here Christ affirms, God affirms, the ultimate value of every person. Persons who are like us, 
and persons who are unlike us. Persons who are born without eyes, legs, discernible, registrable minds, but who have souls. And the soul of such a one, the soul of the last hot and taut, is more precious than the entire world. Now that's something to pass on to your heirs. That's a value. And as a value, qua value, that has to preside over not only what we say to one another, but the manner in which we say it. Why is it that after 30 years of going to Mount Athos and knowing elders and great ones, have I never found one of them who shouted or spoke in a brassy or sassy way or was demeaning or engaged in put-downs? But the greater the elder, the softer his voice, the quieter his presence, the more wonderful it was to stand in his presence. And he spoke to everyone, whether they were this way or whether they were that way, in exactly the same quiet, almost hushed tone. Because he understood he was speaking to a soul whose value equaled a sum greater than the entire earth. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And this week you and I will not have pads of papers and backs of envelopes enough to tote down all the things that we sell our souls for. And we do it heedlessly. We do it mindlessly. We give it away. Then Christ comes something to something that pins us in this particular age through which we pass, perhaps more particularly than those in previous times. Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father, the Doxa of his Father, with the holy angels. Of all the sins, why mention adultery? There is a very long list of other sins. We could have had a murderous generation. We could have had a faithless generation. We could have had any kind of generation. But nothing strikes at the heart of faith and faithfulness, of that way in which human persons establish and sustain decency and integrity. Nothing strikes at that more than adultery. To pledge, to promise in the ultimate ways that human persons are capable of doing, 
to pledge ultimate faithfulness and to betray that ultimate given pledge is the most corrupting and destructive thing that can overtake anyone. And as a priest of pushing 40 years, I can say that of all the sins I must of necessity cope with, it is the one that does the most damage, requires the hardest work to overcome, and leaves a great deal of scar tissue. There be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And that is usually cited by modernists as an example of the fact that Jesus is fallible. It made the mistake, in their estimation, of thinking that the end of the world was so nigh that literally there would be some people who heard him speak those words who would also live to see the end of the world, which of course we know did not happen, and therefore Jesus erred. Erring is not God. Of course, even a cursory glance into the Greek fathers would have discovered that from the very earliest time they exegeted, they explained that particular verse correctly. Because there were some who were standing there, namely three in number, who did live to see the kingdom of God come with power. You know what I'm talking about. That day when Christ led them up to the top of Mount Tabor and was transfigured before them. This sobering week, the week of the veneration of the cross, means that we bend our bodies into metanias, prostrations, we make the sign of the cross, we kiss the cross all week in special devotions. But I suggest to you that you will discover quite another way in which you are called upon to venerate that which is at the very heart of the fast and the center of this day, the Holy Cross. Amen.